T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. It will be one of the hottest races to watch in Illinois this November. Two years ago, 6th District Congressional Republican Peter Roscombe lost his seat to a first-time Democratic contender, Sean Caston. Now, former Republican State Representative Jeannie Ives is the GOP's best shot at winning that seat back, and she is my guest this weekend. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Ives is no slouch when it comes to election. She gained statewide prominence when she came close to upsetting then-Governor Bruce Rauner in the Republican primary. He would go on to lose the election to Democrat J.B. Pritzker, but before she gave up her seat as a three-term state representative, Jeannie Ives was a Wheaton City Council member. She pushed hard for pension reform and free enterprise in elective office. She's also a West Point graduate who served in the U.S. Army until 1993. Now Ms. Ives is taking on freshman Congressman Sean Caston, who describes himself as an environmentalist and a scientist and a businessman. In a typical campaign year, we look forward to a rough and tumble contest. Both candidates are pretty feisty. But because of the continuing coronavirus pandemic, this is anything but a typical political season. And we'll talk about how that may figure into the mix and a lot more during this half hour. Because of the ongoing state shutdown and social distancing, Jeannie Ives and I are not face-to-face. We are conducting this interview via Zoom conferencing. And Jeannie Ives, welcome back to the program. Craig, it's great to be with you again. Well, let's talk about uh, politics in the era of COVID-19. No political rallies yet. Uh, No rooms full of partying, donors, shoulder-to-shoulder. Probably no going door-to-door. How do you campaign in this atmosphere? We're finding a way to do it. Uh, We are connecting with our voters and with our supporters online, just like we're doing right now through Zoom conferencing. Uh, We're we're networking into the district in various ways. I was on a big call with at least 30 people who I'd never met before just the other night who were, were friends of somebody else who knew about the campaign and just wanted to put me in front of folks. So we did a lot of Q&A and got people to understand what this campaign's about. So we're doing that. We've been reaching out into the community. We host a food drive every, uh, the last Saturday of every month. That's been really successful as well. And uh, we, we have a number of volunteers that are helping get the message out among their own networks again. So we're doing what we can. We do plan to do some literature drop to doors. We're not going to not be at doors, we just won't necessarily be knocking them. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes Craig, uh, one more thing, oh, sure. the online the online aspect of campaigning is a big deal right now as well. And we have a lot of digital engagement online with voters. And so we're finding them that way as well. Yeah, I, th I think candidates and, and frankly, um, political leaders of all stripes are mm -hmm. are learning to do this this way. And it's probably going to be with us for a long time. Uh, sometimes when things are unsettled, though, inertia seems to take hold. Uh, incumbents are hard to unseat anyway. Um, what's going to make this year different and, and make it possible for you to overcome what would have been challenging regardless? Look, we don't, we have no doubt it's, it's a challenging race. That's why we need to do a lot of work on the ground as much as we can to let people understand the issues. But this sixth congressional district, they, they still care about the fiscal sanity and insanity that they've been seeing, not only in the state of Illinois, but at the federal level. They still care about balanced budgets. They still don't want their taxes increased. And they certainly don't want big government solutions when they don't solve the problems at hand. And so in taking on Congressman Kasten, that's exactly who we're taking on. We're taking on a man who has voted 100% of the time with Nancy Pelosi. She represents San Francisco. He represents the heart of DuPage County and the environs. So I just, um, he, he has really made some mistakes. These, this district wants somebody to represent them, not rule over them. And as we get into some of the more policy areas, I'll make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and we will indeed do that. Uh, but, but let's stick with COVID-19 because, frankly, that's, it's not just a challenge and a worldwide problem. It is also a political issue. Um, first, I want you to assess the way that the Trump administration so far has dealt with the crisis. I'll tell you what, it's hard to play Monday morning quarterback in the age of COVID-19. I don't think anybody got it right from the beginning. Even when you look at uh, Dr. Fauci, when you look at the Democrat leaders like Cuomo and Pelosi, who deep into March were saying, go ahead, go out and enjoy yourself in Chinatown. There's nothing to worry about here. You heard that repeatedly from leaders. Even Dr. Fauci said, you know, yeah, it's, it, it's a virus, but we're going to weather the storm. So really, I think the person who saw it right the first time was Senator Tom Cotton, who in mid-January said, we need to take this seriously. We've got a pandemic on our hands and we need to shut our borders down. Very quickly thereafter, you saw uh, President Trump shut down the borders and he was vilified for that response, saying it was xenophobic. So no response has been perfect, but these are unusual times. I think though, for the most part, it became fairly evident within the first three or four weeks who was most deeply affected by this virus and what direction we should go. We also saw very quickly how, how tenuous the relationship is in business between what they do and their, con their consumer base and how they can make money. So as you saw, the economics of this just explode in terms of unemployment and businesses being shut down. And at the same time, you understood who was mostly at risk. I think there were mistakes made among the governors in redirecting where we should focus our resources specifically into protecting those in nursing homes and getting the economy going in a safe way. Uh, what steps do you think should have been taken at that point when people did know that older people, people with pre-existing conditions uh, were more likely to get the serious version of this? What are the things you think should have been done? 
Well, look, what, I guess we need to look towards the uh, Pennsylvania health director who took, um, that director took her mother out of the, the facility, the nursing home facility she was in, and put her into a private residence. I think we should have been looking at separating those in nursing homes and putting them into more individualized care situations. I'm very fortunate, my mother is elderly and she actually lives in her own home. I was able to visit her and do so without any hesitation because I knew she wasn't in uh, going to propagate uh, any disease that may have come her way and she wasn't gonna be a carrier and she wasn't gonna be affecting other folks. I think there should have been a separation there. I think it's very obvious that we should have uh, focused on doing the right thing for the elderly that way, protecting them. We didn't. Are you, do you say- Out of those collective situations. Do you believe that the kinds of shutdowns that you saw across the country were not necessary? I think that originally that everybody was right to take a two to three week pause simply to make sure that the healthcare system was up to speed and could handle any emergency that came up. But it became obvious very quickly that we were not going to exceed the capacity of our PPE, of our ventilators, of our healthcare facilities. And so, um, so at that point, you should have shifted gears and started to open things up even more because businesses have, are just, they're failing right now. And uh, it, you've got an economic calamity at this point. You've got 38 million people in America out of work. You've got unemployment in the state of Illinois at 16.4%. That's the highest it's been for a long time. And uh, you are looking at 40% of those making 40,000 or less are out of jobs, out of work. It's really hitting hardest the people that can least weather this financial storm. So um, at some point, and, and here's my big thing about this, Craig. What's any different between opening up restaurants safely right now versus opening it up two weeks ago on May 1st or opening it up in two more weeks? What's the difference? Nobody can tell you what's going to be different in the course of this virus at all. Certainly in March, when we were trying to amp up our hospital supplies, fine. But now there's really, it's arbitrary. All these rules are arbitrary and we're finding that as we look across other states and they have different reopening guidelines. How much weight though should be given to, because remember we're talking to the, the, these leaders who are making these decisions every day and asking these questions, mm -hmm. uh, to the argument from medical professionals that if you brought more people into these situations early, more people would be infected that the crowd situation might transmit the disease more and that eventually uh, it would mean, mean more deaths. Well, we don't know that though, do we? We, we don't know that. If we are able to quarantine, protect our most vulnerable, we don't know what the death rate would be for the number infected. The truth is that there's many, there's a lot of different opinions. Many believe that this virus is going to run its course. At some point you will actually be uh, getting the virus, or there's gonna be enough people that have had the virus already that you won't see it come. But we don't know that. What we do know is that uh, we know who's vulnerable to this virus, and we also know that you cannot shut down the economy for 12 to 18 months to wait for a vaccine, or to wait for there being absolutely no cases, 
or to wait until you have a highly effective and widely available treatment, which is exactly the words and the, the mechanism that uh, Governor Pritzker wanted to use to open up the economy. That's unworkable. You cannot shut down this economy in 12 months, so why not open it now and do it safely? And I'm one of those who believe that uh, the marketplace is going to make this happen the best way it can. I don't think there's any big government solution coming down from Washington, D.C. or Springfield that's going to tell that business how to best interact safely with their customer because businesses are all different. Manufacturing is different from retail, is different from personal care, and even inside those uh, industries, people operate their businesses differently. I firmly believe, though, that the producer and the consumer will come together in the marketplace to come up with a safe way to voluntarily, voluntarily transact their business. And that's the key here. This is a voluntary activity, right? Nobody's forcing you to leave your home. Nobody's forcing you to walk into the restaurant you're not comfortable in or the store that you don't feel comfortable in. Nobody's forcing you to do that. You can do almost anything online. That's the beauty of what we've created in, in uh, America. But at the same time, there are people that want to go about their normal lives. Um, before we talk about what Congress has done, and I know that is an issue here too, mm -hmm. uh, I just want to, when we talk about the most vulnerable, what has at least turned out to be the case in especially large urban areas is that the people who are dying and getting seriously sick at the highest numbers have been the people at the lower end of the eco economic spectrum. It's been people of color, it's been, uh, you know, poorer people and people with underlying conditions that may have had to do with the fact that they were in those, con you know, economic conditions. Those people couldn't be put in individualized uh, places. You, some of them can't even be in individualized places in their own homes. Oh, you're, you're right about that. And I'm not talking about moving family units, um, you know, into other spaces necessarily. I was not talking about that. I was talking about taking those who are in nursing homes that are vulnerable, if they had the ability to instead be taken out of a situation where you've got workers coming in, going out, you've got um, people going to common dining rooms where this infection could easily spread. Why, if they could actually go ahead and, and be taken back into the home, of, the, of a family member where they would have been more isolated and been able to get individual care. I think that that would have been a great idea because that's exactly what the director of health did for his mother or her mother. Okay, so that's exactly what happened there. People understand that. Um, so the, the, if you can self-isolate outside of a group setting, much better situation. That was, but as far as- the, If you have the resources to do that. Yeah. Well, sure, if you have the resources or if you're, uh, maybe you're, maybe that's what you fund though instead of these $3 trillion bailout bills. Maybe that's where you spent your money is protecting the most vulnerable. That's not what we did. That's not- Let's, what, let's talk about that. What, yeah, what, that's what, not what, what we did, did for the minorities, do? right? That's not what we did for the people that are on the lower spectrum of healthcare uh, uh, capabilities either. We did not spend any initiatives there to individually support and protect them. We did not do that. So what do you think of what Congress did do? Well, I think it's been a disaster. They very quickly passed a, uh, a $2.2 trillion package uh, the last week of March. And uh, many of the rules that were written there to help business and get things started immediately ended up being completely unworkable. 
there's a man who owns four restaurants, Andy John Calcunas. He's been on my program or my on an interview with me twice now. And he just wrote a pretty lengthy um, letter to, uh, that he's sending up to Congress. And he essentially said, I cannot take the, the, the relief money because what I'm going to end up with is a loan because the rules that you have surrounded around this relief money are completely unworkable. He's lost 90% of his business. His employees will not come back, and he doesn't blame them because they're making more on unemployment. But even if they were to come back because he got money to help supplement, to fund them, um, there's no work for them to do because his businesses are shut down. He owns four different restaurants. So um, it, that, that program is not helpful to him. And at the meantime, he's got a $9,000 per month property tax bill. He's seen no relief from anybody at the state or local level who's going to help him with that. So they, they rushed through a bunch of money with um, very little um, um, discernment, okay? And then on top of it, what we have specifically in that initial package is that you have Caston, Congressman Caston, completely neglecting his duties. Inside that $2.2 trillion bill, there was $150 billion that was set aside for state and local funding. When that bill was pushed out, when they did the whole formula, what ended up happening is Illinois got $390 per person, Wyoming got over $2,100 per person, and Caston said nothing. Foster said nothing. Pelosi let this happen. They own the house, they run the majority, and he could not even get a fair funding deal for the, the, the citizens that he represents. That's the problem. And in the heat of that debate, when that bill was put, being put together, what Sean Caston did, what Congressman Caston did was he wrote a letter to Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi asking for renewable energy subsidies. He did not write a letter asking for fair and equitable funding. He didn't, ask, he didn't write a letter to help the unemployed. He didn't write a letter to help those most disadvantaged by this health crisis like we talked about already. No, he wrote a letter for renewable energy subsidies, an industry that he has personally invested in. That is what he wrote his letter on. So I mean, that's, that's the problem here. You had a lot of people doing, uh, it, you know, passing legislation in a heartbeat with nothing. And then what did they do last Friday? They, they uh, filed another $3 trillion bill in the dark of night. Pelosi's the only one who wrote anything on it. And they passed that as well. And that $3 trillion bill, now, if that were to be law, we would have spent a hard number of $6 trillion with no accountability at all. And then we would have leveraged four to five trillion dollars more through the financial markets. This is preposterous. Zero accountability in that latest three trillion dollar bill that he passed, that he voted for, uh, and it passed the House. It's completely stopped by the Republicans in the Senate. Good for them. But in that bill, you you have six hundred. You have one trillion dollars going to state and local governments, and there's been zero accountability for the first hundred and fifty billion dollars they gave. Uh, about two months ago. That's You're listening to News Radio 780's at issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking via Zoom conferencing with Republican uh, former state representative Jeannie Ives, who is running for the sixth congressional seat now held by Democrat Sean Caston. Um, before I leave uh, COVID 19, just one quick question because you have a petition uh, going around urging Governor Pritzker to allow youth sports to, uh, to take place. Again, I'm not sure if you've gotten any response from the governor on that, but there's still some concern about group athletic activities, 
even outdoors. Uh, why are you pushing for that? I don't know who's concerned about group athletic activities. I certainly am not. I'm, I'm a former coach. I coached for 12 years. I know that physical activity is both good mentally and physically for children, and it can be done safely. And what we do know about this virus is that it dissipates in the heat, it dissipates outdoors, and that children are not susceptible to it. We know that for a fact. Wait, there you, wait, 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 I'm sorry, I can't, I can't let you say children are not susceptible because that's a dangerous thing to say because there have been children who have died. So children have caught this disease. The youngest one in Illinois is 12. So children get usually a less serious form of it if they get it, but they do get it. So I, I don't want to have medical information going out that sounds like it, they can't catch it. I'm sorry, I had to Craig, stop you there. Okay, Craig, that's fine, but uh, the, the, the child had uh, other issues going on. It's, you know, and, and it's sad, it's terrible. We don't want any children to die, but the truth is that children are in, in, under enormous stress also being cooped up in ho at their homes in many cases. And in some cases, they need to be at this, this as an outlet for their mental health. It is a mental health issue as well. As you, if you talk to anybody, they understand how important it is to have children in activities. That's why we spend an enormous amount of money for after-school activities, especially. So, because we know it affects children's and their health. And by- what are, the, what are the precautions that could be taken? There's plenty of precautions that can be taken. And first of all, again, this is, we're talking about a voluntary activity that parents would decide for themselves whether or not to enroll their children in a, a, a sports activity. So if your child's vulnerable, you're not going to do that. If you have elderly parents that, that live with you at home, possibly you're not going to do it as well. But for the most part, uh, you know, getting this activity, uh, it, having children in activities helps them. It helps them. And so you could, you could limit it to outdoor uh, youth leagues. You could limit it to, um, you could clean down the equipment as much as possible. Uh, but uh, you know, it's just not a fact that uh, the children are are you know as at risk or even at carriers. And there's been a number of studies already done on this. Uh, the Wall Street Journal opined on it just the other day. There's been a study out of Australia that said that essentially says that children aren't even carriers necessarily, um, and that most of them are asymptomatic if they get it. So uh, this is we've never done this before. In, in whenever we've de felt, dealt with a pandemic, we've never shut children out of schools like we have in this case and out of activities. And, and let's, let, let's move Ontario. on to, uh, to other, other issues uh, with the time we have. Um, let's just, let me just ask the broad question. How would you make a better choice for today's sixth district, which is more diverse and not quite as conservative as it may have been when uh, mm -hmm. when I first moved into Page County. Uh, how 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 are you the better choice than Sean Caston? Well, I really truly care about uh, making sure that policy is good policy for everybody in the district. I don't have any sort of financial leanings towards the clean energy industry, and I'm not going to ask for you know, special credits and carve-outs, and that's not going to be my singular focus. It seems to be Sean Caston's singular focus is to help his buddies in the renewable energy industry. He's singularly focused on that, and, and that's just, that's not what we're about. 
At the same time, I have a long record of standing up to uh, politicians on both sides of the aisles when it came to unbalanced budgets and tax hikes. I care about policy formation and, and how it affects people at the lowest level. So I don't just haphazardly vote on things. And I think that's the representation that we want and deserve. I am pro-America. I am pro-national security. I'm not for open borders. I think that laws should apply equally to everyone. And that in America, we have a generous spirit and we can actually get along with each other and solve our problems together as long as we treat each other with respect and on equal footing. And that's not what you get with Sean Caston. He's truly a bitter partisan. Some of the things that he has said from, you know, essentially calling Republicans traitors and, and having uh, aligned groups to him say that we're killers. It's just so disrespectful. Uh, his Twitter rants on Saturday morning, uh, blaming everybody for problems uh, is just unbelievable. It's, it's unprofessional. Um, of course, when we talk to Sean Caston, he will uh, uh, draw a line between you and, uh, and President Trump who is not always popular uh, for some of the things he says, uh, where would you draw the line between you and the president? And especially if you're going to be working in Washington, where, frankly, there would be much more interaction and response to what he does than there was when you were here in Illinois. Here in Illinois. Well, I'll treat uh, President Trump and his policies just like I have here in Illinois. When I could reach across the aisle and work on good policy from delivering um, network adequacy on health care and worked with Democrats to do that, or whether it was uh, reform, corruption reform and transparency at the College of DuPage where I needed Democrats to help me on the, that legislation, then I did it. When I needed to take on my own party, which I did uh, when I you know, ran against Bruce Rauner, a billionaire who uh, most people wouldn't take that challenge on, but I did, uh, it's because it was, uh, we had, I differed on policy with him. And so I will do the same thing when I get to DC. I will look at the policy. If it works for the 6th Congressional District, that's great. But I think the 6th Congressional District needs to, be, uh, needs to understand, look, the Democrats in Springfield, the Democrats in the state of Illinois have destroyed our economy. We are the worst-run uh, state in the nation. We have the biggest pension liabilities when you look at it uh, on a, on a, you know, in terms of our assets. It's, it's, it's just a disaster. So we, cannot, um, we can't continue to take those policies and elevate it at the federal government. We need some fiscal discipline. We need to make healthcare affordable and accessible to everybody. That has not been done yet. We need to make college affordable and accessible or job training, really good skill training accessible to these children. And we need budget caps big time. And I'll tell you what, I'm pro-military. I'm a veteran myself. My kids are serving in the military or have served. And uh, nobody gets a blank check. Nobody does. We can't afford it. So uh, I, I will look at the policy and, and, and make sure that the district is protected and uh, strengthened by it. I will try to bring infrastructure dollars back here that are critical to, um, to this region as well. And where would we get the money for the kinds of spending for things like the job programs, things like the infrastructure? We already have that money. It's just not being deployed ad adequately. That is the problem here. We already have the money. And uh, just one quick other other uh, issue. Well, you know what? Let me just ask you. Okay. Other than that, what would be your, your top priority? I mean, what would be the thing that you would want to see enacted in Congress that would make you feel like you had gone there and done what you wanted to do? 
Well, I think we need to get put budget caps in place and to pare down the budget over time in a reasonable way, which is why I've endorsed a, a plan that takes a 1% swipe out of the budget every single year. And we let agencies figure most of that out. There's ways that we can find savings and we need to get control of this budget. You know, this, the spending is going to catch up with this. Our children are gonna be further in debt and that only means higher taxes. It's just, it's not right to spend this kind of money. And, and it's been uh, spent with no strings attached in many cases and no accountability. So spend, I would like to have spending caps on, but more than that, I would really like to see that we do have a healthcare system that works for everybody, that is both accessible and affordable, and that is basically done through the marketplace of ideas. Uh, in COVID-19 crisis, what have we seen? We have seen numerous regulations lifted so that we can very quickly respond to this crisis. We need to keep that sort of thing going where we can safely, and we've proved it, we can safely innovate um, and, and we need to protect our sources of, of antibiotics and other drugs and bring that manufacturing out of China and back to the United States. And we need to create jobs by doing the same thing. The last thing I would say that I really wanna see is I do wanna see China held accountable for what the, the pandemic that they have unleashed on the world. They need to come clean on how it got started, what they're going to do to correct it, and then we need to keep tight control of our, our critical supply chains, whether it's PPE, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, or other manufacturing. And we need to hold China accountable after all this is said and done. That's gonna be the final word. Thank you. That is Sixth District Republican Congressional Candidate Jeannie Ives. Thank you for spending the time. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.